Good morning, church. Today's reading is from Daniel chapter 8, verses 15 to 25. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the, bl- the banks of the Ulai, and it called, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, understand, O son of man, that this vision is for the time of the end. And when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. But he touched me, and he made me stand up. He said, behold, I will make known to you what shall be in the latter end of the indignation, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia, and the goat is the king of Greece, and the great horn between his eyes is the first king. As for the horn that was broken, in place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from this nation, but not with his power." And at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall arise. His power shall be great, but not his own power. And he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand. And in his own mind, he shall become great. Without warning, he shall destroy many, and he shall even Rise up against the prince of princes, and he shall be broken, but by no human hand. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning. You guys doing well? Outstanding. Welcome to Desert Breeze Community Church. Good to have you with us. Good to have the youth in here with us. Let's give them a hand. And we had our children, a lot of our children, during our uh, song portion of our worship time. It was great to have them also. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Daniel chapter 8. Working our way through the book of Daniel, Old Testament book. Shining in a Dark World is the uh, kind of the subtitle of this series, what we're looking at to try to do. God Rules History is the title of this weekend's message. We only read uh, verses 15 through 25, the second half of chapter 8, and I'm thinking about now that Daniel needs to be drug tested. What are you guys thinking, huh? Does it seem a little weird as we're walking through this text? You guys were paying attention, weren't you? Did you guys read that? It was kind of crazy. He's having a vision. He had a vision last week. This is the second. He's going to have four in the last six chapters. And so it's pretty crazy stuff. Now, let me bring you up to speed. By the way, this is a change of plans. I was going to talk about the spirit of the Antichrist, but believe me, there's plenty of the spirit of the Antichrist in the rest of the book of Daniel. So we'll talk about that. I'll share a little bit of that uh, here today. But I I went back to our old title, God Rules History, and I think it's more pertinent to where we're going. I feel like that's where God is ultimately leading us. But let me bring you up to speed. The first six chapters taught us how we can shine in a dark world. How can we do that? Well, because God is our Savior. He always gives us what we need when life is beyond our control. Certainly was beyond the control of, of Daniel and his three friends. They're in exile, and we saw some pretty phenomenal things happen as a result of God being in their lives, and um, that was the first six chapters, all narrative. And now the second set of six chapters, 12 chapters to the book of Daniel, is apocalyptic, and it's, 
It's prophecy. Pretty, pretty wild stuff. And it, it pertains to, to really the end times. The second six chapters, 7 through 12, teach us why we can shine in a dark world. And that's because God is sovereign. Our life is never out of control because all things, um, all things are working for our good and His glory. And that's really promising. We need that. And so let me start by uh, sharing with you, because when we talk about the sovereignty of God, there's a lot of confusion in our world today. There's prominent preachers and speakers out there that would teach a sovereignty of God that would be different from what we believe uh, is the definition of the sovereignty of God. So when someone says, oh, I believe in the sovereignty of God, and you say, yeah, oh, I do too, you might want to ask for them to give you a definition of what they mean by that idea of the sovereignty of God. And, and because it may be different from what the Bible actually says. And so let me... Let me share with you a story. Uh, this is actually from the book, The Potter's Promise, Latent Flowers. And listen to what he says. Suppose you went for a walk in your local park and happened upon an elderly man playing a game of chess all by himself. You stop and ask him why he is playing both sides of the chess board. And he says, it's the only way I know to guarantee my victory. Sounds a little weird, doesn't it? So he plays one side, and then he moves to the back, other side, and he plays that side, and he's kind of going back and forth. So you're kind of looking at that, it's like, well, okay. You continue on your way to find another elderly man playing chess with an actual opponent, followed by a line of challengers as far as the eye can see. One by one, they are defeated soundly without much effort due to the wisdom and abilities of the elderly chess master. Now, which one are you going to go home and talk about? Which one is really greater and more praiseworthy? Well, the guy that's playing all of these opponents, and they're lined up for miles, and he's beaten every one of them. By the way, that's the one that best represents the sovereignty of God in God. There are those that are high-profile preachers here in our culture today, and they would define the sovereignty of God as God playing both sides of the chess game. It's called divine determinism or divine decree. It is unbiblical, and they're prominent, and they're powerful Bible teachers in our culture today. And you can, you can catch these guys on uh, YouTube or radio or any number of places, but you need to be aware. That's not what we teach. That's not what the Bible teaches. Because you see, uh, God is in control, but he's not controlling. He's not controlling. He's not a micromanager. He's given us freedom to make choices because listen, Listen to me, and you know this, we are image bearers of God. We're created as image bearers of God. We've been invited into a relationship with God and love for God. And relationship and love, you can't have relationship and love apart from freedom and choice. Do you agree with that? Got to have freedom and choice. Otherwise, it becomes manipulation, control. He kind of forces your hand, things like that. It's not God. In fact, look at your notes here. God is so perfect in love, infinite in wisdom, and unlimited in power that he can overcome, work through, accomplish his purposes, and ensure his victory for our good and his glory in spite of the good, bad, and ugly choices of mankind. 
Did you hear the theme music of uh, Clint Eastwood's movie, The Good, The Bad, The Ugly? Thank you very much. Well, I mean, hey, God, God doesn't play both sides of the chess game. He plays only one, and he always wins, as we talked about last weekend. And God rules history. But he doesn't force our hand. He gives us the ability to make choices within those choices. Guess what? He still wins. I'm glad I'm on his team. Now, uh, many of you know this, that uh, I talked about it last weekend, uh, about my, my relationship with my wife. And yesterday, 45 years ago, she said, I do to me. We piled into my Ranger XLT truck and drove four and a half hours to Springerville, Arizona, where we moved into an 8x35 trailer. And I worked at the Coronado Generating Station out of St. John's, Arizona, where I started my apprenticeship. And, and that's been 45 years ago. And when she said, I do on that day, 45 years ago yesterday, it moved my heart. I didn't manipulate her into marrying me, okay? You guys know that. I didn't force her. I didn't trick her. And yes, we are still married by God's amazing grace. And I, I'm so thankful for that. Praise God. But it moved my heart when she said, I do. I offered her an invitation of love and relationship for the rest of our lives. And she said, I do. It moved my heart. God offers us an invitation an amazing invitation of love and relationship. And when we say, I do, it moves his heart. It's a relationship made in heaven. It is out of this world. He doesn't force our hand. He doesn't manipulate us. I mean, he doesn't trick us. But I'm telling you, when you understand the gospel, I don't know why you wouldn't want to give your life to him. You just freely want to give your life to him. And so... That's what we're talking about here when we talk about God always wins, uh, God rules history. That's what we're talking about when we talk about the sovereignty of God. Now, let me ask you this question. We talked about it last weekend. When it comes to the future of your life, think about the future of your life, where you're headed, future of your kids' lives, the future of your home, your family, the future of this country. Are you stressful or restful? Are you stressful or restful? This is what's making noise back here. That's right. Okay. Okay. Something was rattling there, and I thought it was something over here with these uh, youth. Here, maybe somebody, it was, it was Jace over there. You making noise back there, dude? Okay, wake up. How come you're sleeping back there? Okay. Now, it was this, this thing. It was, I think it was uneven. It was kind of rattling here. Okay, I got a little ADD going on this morning. I apologize. Please forgive me. So anyway, are you stressful? Yeah. Or restful? Which one would best represent you? The more you understand what we're talking about, what Daniel's talking about here, the more you understand the sovereignty of God, I'm telling you, listen to me. When you live in the reality of the sovereignty of God, that God always wins, God rules history for your good and His glory, you're going to be less stressful, more restful, believe me. That's where we're headed with our study. So let's pray. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's take a moment. Let's ask for God's help before we uh, dive into this text. We got a lot here we got to work through. So God, we are delighted to be here today. Man, we love, we love spending time with you. We love growing in our relationship with you. 
Lord, we are desperate for you. And, and God, we're, we are thankful that becoming your child is the highest privilege of the gospel, that sinners like us have been forgiven, brought in for supper, and given the family name and inheritance. The gospel is the most amazing truth we have ever heard. Give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation as we study your word that we may know more clearly than ever that the most loving, wise, and powerful being in the universe is our Father, our Daddy, our Abba, who is working all things for our good and His glory so that we might become less stressful, more restful for our joy, your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' beautiful name. And everyone said... Amen. So here we go. So you can see on your notes, you've got to follow. This is going to take a little bit of work, and uh, we're going to work through this chapter. I'm going to give you an overview of chapter 8. And a lot of you guys don't even have notes. What's the deal here? Did they not give you notes this morning? They're trying to cut back? Okay. Uh, we have any extra notes back there? Would you guys like to have some notes? No? Okay. Never mind. Uh, I got you. Hey, it, most of this stuff will be up on the screen. You can follow along. I just don't want you to get lost. Because where we're working here, we, we need to get to the part where we talk about God rules history. What does that mean? And then what difference does it make? That's where we're going. But man, I got to lay out a lot of foundation. We're going to go into a lot of details. I'm going to give you a lot of numbers. And I need you to stay with me. Okay? And if I see you sleeping out there, I'm coming after you. You, got, you guys okay with that? Okay, because I can see every one of you. Some of you have kind of moved around a little bit from where you typically sit. You're trying to confuse me, aren't you? Okay, so here we go. Look at the outline. Daniel chapter 8. Now, this is what's fascinating about the book of Daniel. Daniel accurately prophesied more than 2,500 years of world history with astonishing detail, precision. It's absolutely amazing. And, and so uh, Daniel chapter 8 is one of those examples that this gives us the validity and the veracity of God's Word, that this is truly the Word of God because He's predicting future events. It's absolutely amazing. In verses 1 and 2 of chapter 8, Daniel's second vision during the third year of Belshazzar's reign, Daniel 8 recounts the second of Daniel's four visions that he received near the end of his life, chapter 7 through 12. It is 551 B.C. Daniel is 70 years old. Now, when we left Daniel at chapter 6, Daniel in the lion's den, he was, how old was he? He was 80. So it's actually going back to the days preceding that. So it's after King Nebuchadnezzar, King Belshazzar, still part of the Babylonian kingdom. And so this is where he gets these visions. And so it is 551 B.C. Daniel is 70 years old, and it focuses on the second and third world governing empires of Daniel's vision in Daniel chapter 7. So in Daniel chapter 7, he prophesied four world governing empires. Just do your history. Go back in history and you can see this is accurate. And he's only focusing on two because they pertain to the vision in chapter 8. And the second of the world governing empire, the first one was the Babylonian, the second is the Persia or Medo-Persian, and the third is the Greek uh, world governing empire of Daniel's vision in Daniel 7. Now, verses 3 and 4, Persia is symbolized as a ram with two horns. Now, the part that we read this morning is the second part of this chapter where uh, Michael the, the angel shows up and gives interpretation 
of this, of this uh, vision that Daniel has. So that's where he tells them this is the Medo-Persian Empire, modern-day Iran. So there's two horns. If you've got your Bibles open, you can verify this. There's two horns. One horn is Persia, was higher than the other, which was the Medo or the Media, and it took over the Medo part of this empire. Persia conquered Babylon 12 years later in 539 B.C. So Daniel's in Babylon prophesying that 12 years later, the Persians are going to come in and take over. It'd be like being a part of the current uh, presidential cabinet, and you receive a vision, and you tell the president that Russia in 12 years is going to come over and take over our country. That would be frightening. You're going to come over and take over America. This is what he's experiencing through this vision. And so, let me give you more details of what happened. So and that's exactly what happened according to history. And during the Persian Empire, the exiles are able to return to Jerusalem, 538 B.C., and to rebuild the temple, 520 B.C. This is all important information, by the way, where we're headed in our study this morning. And, uh, and, they, and then, uh, so they rebuilt the temple, 520 B.C., bringing a reformation led by Ezra and Nehemiah. 450 B.C. Now, in Daniel chapter 9, which is the next, next week's uh, text, as Daniel, he's quite frightened by these two visions. There's just, he's really in turmoil. It drives him into the Scripture and on his knees to pray for an awakening, a revival, renewal for his people, which is a great pattern for us. And, and so he starts reading Jeremiah 29. He realizes that their exile is coming to an end. It's almost been 70 years since they've been in exile. God said, you'll only be in exile for 70 years. That was all predicted in Scripture. And so he begins to intercede for his people. That's why we call next weekend, weekend's message, Humble, Bold Prayer. It's going to teach us how we can pray for our country. Perfect timing, just before midterms and where we're headed as a country. So important stuff. Verses 5 and 8. Verses 5 and 8, the summary once again of chapter 8 of Daniel. Greece symbolized as a goat with a notable or conspicuous horn. And we know that based on Gabriel's interpretation in verse 21. This is Alexander the Great, the first king of Greece. How many studied about Alexander the Great in, in world history? Anybody? Okay, not anybody. Okay. Just a few of us know who Alexander the Great is. Okay, there's a couple of us that actually, uh, maybe actually passed the history class, okay? And, uh, and so, he came to the ram, Persia, with powerful wrath. That's verse 6. So, it really gets into descriptive language. That's exactly what he did. Enraged against him and trampling on him, verse 7. These are totalitarian governments that are just taking over the world. They are brutal. They are harsh. Really shows the heart of man and mankind. This happened in 334 B.C., 200 years later. So he has this vision, and he sees that 12 years down the road, Persia is going to come in and take over Babylon, and then within 200 years, the Grecian Empire is going to come in and take over Persia. The goat became, who's the goat? Tom Brady? Michael Jordan? Well, you guys are with me, aren't you? Okay, so the goat became, it's uh, Alexander the Great is who he's talking about there. The goat, the goat became exceedingly great 
and, and when he was strong, was broken. And there's a lot of interesting stories out there about Alexander the Great. He started in his early 20s, conquered the whole world within about 10 years. By the time he was 32, he'd conquered the whole world, and there was no more world to conquer. He broke down and cried. Yeah, he was frustrated. He was an alcoholic, started drinking, went outside. It was raining, got cold, caught pneumonia. Boom, died at age 32 in 323 B.C. Fascinating story. And so then out of his kingdom, world governing empire, and his kingdom was divided among his four generals, that's found in verse 8 and explained, interpreted in verse 22. And out of one of these four generals or kingdoms comes, now this is, takes us to verses 9 through 14. The little horn as the Antichrist, show of hands, how many have heard of the Antichrist? You, you're familiar with this idea of the Antichrist. Okay, okay. So the little horn as the Antichrist foreshadowed by Antiochus Epiphanes. Don't name your kids that, okay? That's a bad name for your kids. Maybe for your dog, yeah, especially your cat, okay? Antiochus Epiphanes. This is an interesting name for a guy in history. So this is the eighth king in the Seleucian dynasty, one of the four generals that split off from Alexander the Great. So there's a guy that, that raises up. This is all part of biblical prophecy. So one of the four generals, this Seleucian dynasty, he's the eighth king. He came to power in 175 B.C. after murdering his brother, the rightful recipient of the throne. So 150 years after Alexander the Great. So in an effort to unify the kingdom, he led a brutal suppression of Jewish worship in Jerusalem, a brutal suppression of the Jewish worship in Jerusalem by erecting an idol of Zeus in the temple of God and desecrating by offering swine on it. That's despicable to Jews, by the way. It's just kind of like in your face. It's known as the abomination of desolation. How many have ever heard of that statement before? Abomination of desolation. Yep. So this is all foreshadowing future for us of the Antichrist. He murdered a multitude of Jews, restricted them from practicing their faith by threatening capital punishment, and it was a capital crime to possess the Hebrew Scriptures. And in fact, if you've got your Bibles there, glance down at verse 12. You almost get the idea that there's some major demonic activity around this guy, this Antiochus Epiphanes. A lot of demonic activity because it's the same language that's used. I believe it's in the 12th chapter of Revelation where it talks about Satan bringing a third of the host of angels with him, kind of deceiving them. So you get a little bit of that idea. His reign of terror and acts of sacrilege did not last long. It's almost like God snuffed him out. 164 B.C., 11th year of his rule, he became seriously ill and died. On December the 14th, 163 B.C., Judas Maccabeus, who was kind of revolting and pushing back to this king, trying to raise up kind of a revolt against him, uh, he came in, rededicated the temple, recommending daily sacrifice. Now, there's an important fact here, an event. So this event 
celebrated as Hanukkah, celebrated as Hanukkah by the Jewish community ever since. This is where they get it, Hanukkah, right here. So this, this when you think of Hanukkah, this Antiochus Epiphanes kind of desecrated the temple and just beat the living daylights out of the Jewish people. God snuffed them out, uprises this uh, Judas Maccabees who reestablish and rededicates the temple and they keep up where they had left off, continue to make sacrifices and continue with the, the services there and that's where Hanukkah comes in. Now, verses 15 through 25, this is the part that we read this morning and Gabriel appeared to Daniel to explain the vision. Gabriel makes his first appearance right here in the Bible. Anybody know how many times he appears in the Bible, Gabriel? A little Bible trivia? Four times. One here, once in the next chapter, chapter 9 of Daniel. The other time is Luke 1.19, Zechariah, John the Baptist's father. And then the fourth time is in Luke 1.26, it's Mary, the mother of Jesus, he shows up to. Pretty fascinating. In verses 15 through 19, the vision pertains to the end times. This is what he says. Now, this is what you need to keep in mind. Time you read Old Testament prophecies. For many prophecies, there is both a near fulfillment and a far one. And the near fulfillment gives, gives you a picture of the far one. So this idea of this Antiochus Epiphanes is giving us a picture of what we still, still now await in the future. There's a guy, he will be the Antichrist. And he will rise up and take power and, and, and be really strong. Let me continue to work through this, and I'll give you more detail about what that will look like in the future. But, but uh, verses 20 through 22, Gabriel explained the symbols in the vision. The ram is the Persian Empire, and the goat is the Grecian Empire. And then this is really fascinating, and I would encourage you to read this on your own. Verses 23 through 25, we have the Antichrist personality and power. So as you read that, this is his personality and power, and I'm telling you, he's going to fool a lot of people. There's going to be more people deceived than won't be deceived. And that spirit is alive and well on planet Earth right now, the spirit of the Antichrist. And there are a lot of people being deceived by that spirit. I would encourage you to read that, kind of study that. The Antichrist will be the ultimate embodiment of what it means to be against Christ or to be a counterfeit Christ. And in the end times, a man will arise. We're talking about our end times. Oh, you guys knew that, didn't you? Eventually, your life's going to come to an end, but this whole planet's going to come to an end. This whole place is going to come to an end. I know, I know, I got it. When you're young, you just think it's going to go on forever and ever. It won't. It's not. The Bible predicts an end, all of this. He's given us a warning. He's like saying, hey, wake up. Your life's not just going to keep going on forever and ever and ever. You're going to come to an end. You're going to eventually die. And this whole place is going to come to an end. And in the end times, a man will arise and oppose Christ and his followers more than anyone else in history, claiming to be the true Messiah, the Antichrist. He will set up a seven-year covenant with Israel and then break it. We see that in, in Daniel chapter 9. So check this out. There will be peace in the Middle East. It'll be a false peace because it won't last. And this guy will have a covenant with Israel, probably help them rebuild the temple. They'll resume maybe sacrifices, possibly. 
But this Antichrist is going to come down hard on them. And this will be the abomination of desolation where he might even go into the temple and even claim to be God. That's all still in our future. Now, what's interesting about this is that in Matthew 24, 15, in the Olivet Discourse, this is Jesus telling us about the end of the world, the end times. It's chapters 24 and 25. This is what he says in verse uh, 15 of chapter 24. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, so he's, he's validating Daniel. When people think that, oh, Daniel, they came up with this information later on, the world governing empires, and put it in the book of Daniel because that's why they're so accurate, because Daniel didn't really write it. They just put Daniel's name on that. That's not accurate because Jesus, who resurrected from the grave, who's God in the flesh, no, he said that Daniel's the real deal. He actually did predict this stuff, and he actually says, Daniel the prophet, when you see the, des the abomination of desolation spoken by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand the end is coming down. In other words, I'm coming. My second coming is right around the corner. So with his first coming, he came to bear our judgment. His second coming, he's going to bring judgment. That's what he's talking about here. And I'm so glad, I'm, I'm so glad. I don't have to face his judgment because I've received him as my savior bearing my judgment for me. Remember the first coming came to bear our judgment. And if you haven't, if you haven't committed your life to Christ, if you're not following him, you will face his judgment. That's a fact. That's a reality. And he, he will come back, balance the books, settle the score, make things right. You want to make sure you're on his team. And you do that by grace through faith in him. Okay. Verses 27 and 26. We're almost done. We're almost done. You guys still with me? Okay, cool. So verse 27, 20, uh, 26, 27. We're almost finished up with this uh, summary of the chapter, overview of the chapter, uh, Daniel chapter 8. The importance of the vision, so he gives that, refers to many days from now, about the end times. And then Daniel's response, he's overcome and lay sick for days. Pretty overwhelming. Okay. You guys with me now? Okay, here we go. Let's answer the question. God rules history. What does it mean? What, is that a, what does that mean to anything? I listened to a lot of studies, and they stopped right there. They didn't go any further. And I'm like, hey, so I, I, I got that. God rules history, but how's that apply to my life? I'm going to tell you. I'm going to tell you. This is, what it, this is what it means. Here's the first thing. Some of you, I know that you had your, you had your pin poised throughout the whole message. We're almost 30 minutes into the message, and you didn't get your first fill in the blank yet. You guys are... You go, oh, come on, what's wrong with this guy? Okay, here it is, right here. What does it mean? Bible prophecy gives proof. There it is. Bible prophecy gives proof that the Bible is God's Word, protects and prepares us for the future, and reveals God's providential hand always working for our good and His glory. Okay, so here's what we're working towards. I want you to be less stressful and more restful when it comes to your future and the future of our country and the future of where we're headed, okay? This is, this is the goal. So we're trying to apply all of this now to our lives. And so Bible prophecy gives proof that the Bible is God's Word, protects and prepares us for the future. This is what it's meant to do. So we get beyond secularism, which is nowism. We've got to live for tomorrow. We've got to understand what's, where we're headed 
in the future. And then also reveals God's providential hand working for our good and his glory. Now, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 21. You guys remember who Peter is? Peter denied Christ three times. That's kind of the first thing we think of. And yet he was a powerful leader in the early first century church. And, and in fact, uh, he was one of the many eyewitnesses of the resurrected Christ. Man, he was lit up on fire for Jesus after that. And he's, he writes in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 21. He says, These were not cunningly devised fables when we proclaimed to you the coming of our Savior and the man Christ Jesus, that he was resurrected from the grave. We didn't make this stuff up. No, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He said, that's a lot of proof. But if you want greater proof of the man Christ Jesus, you're going to get greater certainty by studying the prophetic word of the Old Testament. That's what he says in 2 Peter 1, chapter 1, verses 16 through 21. He says, yeah, I was an eyewitness, but just study the Old Testament. Study the predictions, the prophecies. They're unbelievable. They give you greater validity, veracity to the man Christ Jesus and also to the scriptures. In fact, we know this, that with Jesus' first coming, he fulfilled how many Old Testament prophecies? Anybody? Anybody know this? Bible trivia, 300, 300 predictions specific to the man Christ Jesus. I mean, I think he wanted us to know who the Messiah is. I mean, it doesn't take much of a brain to figure that out. 300, yeah, 300 arrows pointing to, ah, this is the Messiah. And so we know that. That's why he's saying, hey, man, look at the Old Testament prophets. Now, this idea of the providential hand of God, I mean, we can see that throughout the Old Testament too. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Israel, wandering through the wilderness. It's pretty amazing. Here's what you need to know. And I, whatever you're facing, whatever you're going through, whatever you, you, I mean, you might be looking ahead and going, ah, seems hopeless. Life seems hopeless. This country seems hopeless. Maybe you're struggling here this morning and you just go, man, the way my circumstances are working out, I don't see God's hand in any of this. This is what you need to keep in mind, is that God is at work in the worst of times doing a thousand things no one can see but Him for your good and His glory. You can take that to the bank. That's what He's wanting us to understand in this storyline and our understanding in the book of Daniel. Here's your next point on your notes. We are sinful by nature and by choice, and we will reach our worst in human history in a worldwide kingdom under a satanic ruler known as the Antichrist. That's what the Bible says. Now, there's just way too much for me to talk about here. You can study this on your own. But verses 9 through 14 and then verses 23 through 25 talk about the Antichrist. There's more scriptures. In fact, 1 John 4, 1 through 6 talks about the spirit of the Antichrist that's alive and well on planet Earth right now. And then 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 12 calls him the man of lawlessness. If you have your Bibles open, look to verse 23. Listen to what it says. This is where I got this idea. Verse 23 of Daniel 8. And at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit. Do you hear what he's saying? Murder, evil, wickedness will reach its peak in the end times. Unlike ever before, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall arise. So we 
are sinful by nature and by choice, and we will reach our worst in human history in a worldwide kingdom under a satanic ruler known as the Antichrist. This is what he's saying. Now, what does that mean? I think it kind of helps us to understand sin a bit. Everyone wants to rule the world. Oh, you don't want to rule the world? No, you probably want to just rule your, your world. Okay, maybe you don't want to rule the world, but we all really want to run our own world. By the way, the Bible calls that sin. See, the essence of sin is substituting yourself for God. You were created by God for God to allow Him to lead, guide, empower your life. You were to live it for your, His glory, but no, no, no. I would rather live it for my glory. That's the essence of sin. When we talk about we are sinners by nature and by choice, that's what we're talking about here. The essence of sin is, is us substituting ourselves for God. The essence of salvation is God substituting himself for us on the cross for our sins on our behalf to redeem us, rescue us, reconcile us back to the Father. Absolutely amazing. Now, what does this idea of Antichrist mean anyway? Antichrist. Antichrist, and when we say that there's a spirit of the Antichrist that's alive and well on planet Earth, what do we mean by that? Turn to the person next to you and see if they can give you a good definition of Antichrist or the spirit of the Antichrist. You got it. You need to know this, otherwise you could be easily duped and deceived by the spirit of the Antichrist currently working. What is the Antichrist? Real quick, ask the person sitting next to you and see if they know. Okay, what's this idea of the spirit of the Antichrist or the Antichrist? How many were thinking against Christ? Against Christ? Okay, nobody. Nobody was thinking that. Okay, there's a couple. And what were you guys thinking anyway? You guys weren't even talking about this, were you? Okay, yeah, you were talking about it. So give, give me a definition. Yell it out to me. Satan? False prophet? Okay, those are good definitions, certainly. But there's something much deeper here. Antichrist... Antichrist means against Christ. So did you know that all the major cults and religions of our world today other than Christianity are Antichrist? Because when you think of Antichrist, you think of that which would define Jesus to be someone other than what the Bible says he is. It would deny the deity of Jesus. Jesus is God in the flesh who came to save us through his work, not our work. We're not saved by our works, but by his works. So the person and work of Christ, if you redefine the person and work of Christ, which made every major cult and religion of our world today, do I need to name a few for you? Like the Jehovah Witnesses, like the Mormons, like Christian science. Look at them all. They deny the deity of Christ, that, God, that Jesus is God in human flesh. And there are even Christian churches that would go, Jesus plus Get your act together, Jesus plus a list of rules, Jesus plus that's an antichrist. Because it's not Jesus plus anything. It's Jesus plus nothing equals everything. It's in through Christ. When he came to this earth and he died in our place for our sins, he said it is finished. The work is completed. The bridge has been built across the chasm that separated us from God. It, salvation is not something you achieve. It's something you receive by grace through faith in Jesus. And you define it any other way, that is the Antichrist. And, and most of you would say, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Woo! 
Woo! That's, that's, I'm in. I know that. I got that. But here's the problem with most of us. We understand the person and work of Jesus Christ. That This is where we get messed up. Antichrist doesn't just mean against Christ, but a substitute for Christ. Oh, my goodness. We substitute for Christ all the time. We try to get out of our marriages and in our kids and how they turn out and our job and in any number of things what we should be getting out of Christ. There's nothing wrong with any of these things. They're all very good things. But when you take a good thing and turn it into an ultimate thing, it's become a God thing. It's become an antichrist. Because we try to get from it what we should be getting from Christ. And of course, you know, Self-deception runs deep, but our self-deception, our cover is blown in suffering because of the inordinate emotions and negative thoughts that we have when our antichrist, our counterfeit God, our pseudo-savior is being threatened, blocked, or lost in some way. I mean, our emotional response is off the charts. I was, uh, I don't know if you guys have ever had the the privilege, I think it's a privilege, it was a lot of fun because we had some friends here in the church that invited us to a, a GCU basketball game, Grand Canyon University basketball. Anybody ever go to a GCU basketball game? It's out of control. It is crazy. It's, it's fun watching the students because they're crazy. That place was lit up. My ears are still bleeding. I mean, it was just, it was a lot of fun. But while we were there, we ran into a lot of people and we ran into a couple there that we hadn't seen for a couple years and we was kind of in the foyer during the halftime, and I knew that he had retired about two years ago, and so I was asking him, so how's the retirement going? And uh, he goes, oh my goodness, you know, I've been working for 45 plus years, that was hard to let go of, and then the economy's down, so I wasn't sure about the retirement, oh my goodness, I was so anxious, and not only that, my dad passed away during this time, so it was really a struggle. And then he went on to begin to tell me, he said, but I, I got together with a Christian friend, and this Christian friend told me, that, you know, there's only two kinds of people. Only two kinds of people. There's people who uh, are unbelievers that are anxious, and then there's those that are believers and they're anxious. And the major difference between the two is that the believer that's anxious has forgotten how amazing their God is. And he said that with me, and he, he just kind of smiled. He goes, I was just like so anxious, and I realized I had misplaced my identity. He didn't go into all that detail, but as I was talking with him, he, he just kind of lit up, and he goes, when I begin to get back to the fact that God is absolutely amazing, that, that the most loving, wise, powerful being in the universe always has my best interest at heart, He's always working for my good and his glory. When I remembered that, whoa, the anxiety began to go by the wayside. So what was happening in his heart? Well, he, he had an antichrist kind of working. He had misplaced his sense of identity in his retirement and in his job that he'd worked for 45 plus years and all of that. And so he had to replace that with Christ. Here's what I, I put down on my notes. It's called replacement rejoicing in the face of an idol. You, you, you can't remove an idol. You can only replace an idol. We're going to serve somebody or something. So you replace it by rejoicing in Christ 
more than you would rejoice in your idol, realizing that what I have in him is so much better by far. As I stated, as I stated, self-deception runs deep, but suffering blows our cover and reveals our pseudo-saviors, our antichrist, through our inordinate negative thoughts and emotions. I mean, think about this. We should be the most contented people on the planet the happiest people on the planet because we always have what we most want and that's the Lord Jesus Christ never to leave us or forsake us. But instead, oftentimes we're bitter over the past, we're complaining about the future, we're worried about, or we're complaining about the present, we're worried about the future. There's such discontentment. Our discontentedness is revealing that we've misplaced our sense of well-being, identity, security, significance, satisfaction. So as I was talking to him, I just, I was blown away. I I was thankful. I was going, that's really cool. I'm so thankful that you were kind of able to do that course correction. You were able to be consoled. You just forgot. It's called gospel amnesia. We forget. That's the Antichrist working. That's the spirit of the Antichrist working in our lives. Okay, okay. I spent enough time on that. Let's keep going. We've got to keep rolling here. Here's the next one. God is truly grieved at how we have ruined the world and abused each other. We're still talking about God rules history. What does that mean? What do we see him working behind the scenes so that we can become less stressful and more restful? God is truly grieved at how we have ruined the world and abused each other. Daniel chapter 7. This is the first vision of Daniel on the back half of the book of Daniel. And it says in Daniel 7:15 that he was anxious and alarmed. Verse 28, my thoughts greatly alarmed me. That's in verse uh, chapter 7 also. My thoughts greatly alarmed me and my color changed. He became pale as he had these visions. Chapter 8, verse 27, overcome. He said he became overcome and lay sick for days. I think, and I started trying to understand this. Why is he so upset? Because he's got the God of the galaxies on his side. I think he's revealing to us the heart of God and how God feels about the brokenness of our world. And in fact, it tells us in Genesis 6, 5 through 6, shortly after creation, well, a long time after creation, but kind of shortly after creation in some regards. Genesis 6, 5 through 6, kind of in the order of how it's written in the book of Genesis, it says the heart of God was grieved at the wickedness of man. Did you know that our sin, when we sin against God, we are trampling on his perfect love and infinite wisdom? It's a dagger in the heart of God. It breaks his heart because he has our best interest at heart. Luke 19, 41 through 44 says that Jesus weeps over Jerusalem. He's brokenhearted over our sin. God is truly grieved at how we have ruined the world and abused each other. Here's the next one. God controls, limits, restrains evil, otherwise evil would be out of control. This is part of God ruling history. 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 12. It uses this language of restraining. I encourage you to study this. Use this word twice. Restraining the man of lawlessness, the Antichrist, and also the mystery of lawlessness that is already at work. 
Psalm 33, 10 through 11 says, the Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the people. Verse 11, the counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. The plans of his heart to all generations. He has our best interest at heart. He's still working. He takes the bad circumstances of our life and works them for our good. So in case you forgot, God always wins because his, because he rules history. He's not controlling, but he's in control. Here's another kind of expression of him being in control of our lives and the circumstances. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says, no temptation has seized you except what is common to man, and God is faithful, and he will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation give, a, give you a way of escape. You hear what he's saying? I'm even restraining what's coming into your life that would lead you astray from me. And I'm faithful, and I will help you in the midst of that. That's part of him being in control. Not controlling, but being in control. Psalm 46, 1, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Okay, here's the next one. God is more concerned about revealing our sin than relieving our suffering. Oh, doggone it. I was not hoping for that one. God is more concerned about revealing our sin than relieving our suffering. Romans 8, 18 through 21, kind of a paraphrase of that section. You'd have to read it on your own. God allowed us to face the consequences of our sin and hope that it would bring our hearts back to him. Psalm 119.67, listen to what the psalmist says. Before I was afflicted, before I suffered, I went astray, but now I keep your word. Psalm 71 of Psalm 119, it was good for me to suffer. That's my favorite Bible verse. Not. Most of us probably don't have that verse underlined. But he, stopped, he doesn't stop there. He says, it is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. How many would say that it was through affliction, it was through suffering, that you came to faith in Jesus Christ? Show of hands. Whoa, praise God. It was suffering that brought you to the Savior. How many have found in their own lives that suffering has brought you into a much deeper, rich, robust relationship with Christ? I know it has happened for me. Oh, my goodness. I'm so thankful for it, actually. I'm so thankful. That's, that's the work of God in our lives. It's absolutely amazing. Uh, the absolute worst thing that could ever happen to you is to have a painless or problem-free life and never wake up to your pride and desperate need for God. That would be a curse. Here's what's interesting. When you read through a lot of the epistles, the letters to the churches by the Apostle Paul who wrote a big chunk of the New Testament, and he has some really good prayers. Those are great prayers to pray. Not one of them is ever in a circumstance enhancement prayer. It's never a prayer to relieve suffering. By the way, he's writing to people that are suffering. They're under duress in a lot of ways. And not one of his prayers, search it out, not one of his prayers are a relieved suffering prayer. It's reveal the Savior. Lord, reveal yourself to them in the midst of their suffering. It's not a circumstance enhancement. It's a Christ really entrancement that they would be captivated by the beauty and the glory of who Christ is. 
God is more concerned with your character than your comfort. By the way, the more he gets your character, I mean, a lot of times people say, I don't know what God's up to. I can't believe it. All this suffering is going on. I know exactly what he's up to. He's trying to drive you deeper into his love and experience of his love so that he can transform your life unlike you've ever been transformed before. Man, he has your best interest at heart. And man, the more you develop that character, fully on comfort, it doesn't matter. You could get through anything. You get closer to him, you become more like him, you can handle anything. That's what he has in store for us. That's what he wants for us. That's what he's doing. Okay, God allows what he hates to accomplish what he loves. So I gave you a list of the things that suffering does in our lives as, as God uses this. It dissects our faith, 1 Peter 1, 7. It develops our character in ways that our character could never be developed otherwise. Romans 5, 3 through 5. It directs our lives. I find this really interesting in Acts chapter 8. Yeah, the early church, they had encountered the resurrected Christ. I mean, they were seeing a lot of people come to faith, but they had this little holy huddle going on in Jerusalem. And God said, hey, hey, wait a minute. I told you to go into all the world, but you're not going. So guess what's going to happen? Suffering. Suffering breaks out, and they scatter throughout the world. And as they scatter, they spread the gospel. They spread the gospel throughout the world. So many times, God will use suffering to, to direct our lives. Suffering makes us more dependent upon God. I have an intimacy with God now that I owe to suffering, that I'm more dependent upon Him, and I wouldn't trade it for anything. It allows God to demonstrate His power. How many have experienced God's power in the midst of suffering unlike you've ever experienced before? Both hands up. I've seen it. I've seen it in my life. You're going through a hard time. Look to God. Let Him demonstrate His power in your life unlike you've ever experienced before. And not only does it demonstrate his power, it gives opportunity to demonstrate his power suffering, but it defines what's really important in life. In Luke 12, 15, it's not fortune and fame, but faith, family, and friends that matters the most. It gets us through the hard times. And suffering tends to cut to the chase and help us to see that. Now, okay, we've almost run out of time, okay? But I've asked the ushers to go ahead and lock the doors because I've got a story to tell you, and then we'll knock out the rest of this. We're almost done. So let me tell you a quick story here. And uh, let me just do a quick survey here. By show of hands, how many have ever played poker? Played poker? Show of hands, let me see all the hands. Y'all are going to hell. (laughs) Yep, yep, you're going to hell. You see, I was uh, raised in a church where we didn't smoke, drink, dance, play cards, go to movies, or chew, or go with girls that do, okay? That was, that was the background I came from, so uh, actually that's not true, of course. None of that is true. You're not going to hell because of playing cards. But, but the, really, I stayed away from cards because of that to a certain degree, but the only cards sometimes we would play is Bible trivia, okay? I guess that's okay. But I have to confess this morning, I did cheat at Bible trivia. So it was my buddy and his wife and my, and my wife, and we sat down, and so it was the guys against the girls, and so the girls had to run off to the bathroom. I don't know why the girls all feel like they have to go to the bathroom at the same time, but they did. It was very helpful for us because my buddy and I, being on the same team, we started looking at the cards on the deck so that when they brought them up, they would ask questions, we'd be able to answer them. So they came back and they raised the first card and they asked this really, really hard question and bam, I answered it just like that and their jaws dropped like, wow, where'd you hear that? And of course I told them I I learned that in my morning devotions just this morning because that's how close I am to God. God and I, 
we connect like that. And so we kind of went through the, da- the, the stack for a while because we were able to memorize that. And then, of course, we had to admit the fact that uh, we were cheating and, and they tried to murder both of us right there on the spot. It was ugly. It was an ugly scene. But yeah, yeah, we actually cheated Bible trivia and later on I became a pastor and my buddy is now a pastor here in the valley. And so what does that say about us? Okay, it doesn't say much. But here's the point that I'm trying to make is that when you have a winning hand, whether you play poker or Bible trivia or whatever you play, when you have a winning hand, you're not uptight or nervous. You just enjoy the game. And I noticed that the few times that I have played poker, when I have a winning hand, I don't typically have a poker face. It's more like this. <laughs> whoa, whoa, I'm coming after you guys. It's kind of like you, you, when you play poker, you're not supposed to do that, okay? But I didn't know that initially, and everybody's like, oh, I'm, 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 I'm out, I'm out, I'm out. And so here's the point that I want you to understand. When you have a winning hand, you're not uptight or nervous, you just enjoy the game. You won't have a poker face. You won't have a poker face when you understand what the king of the universe, who happens to be your father, is up to in your life. Listen to me. As believers in Christ, we have the winning hand. We can learn to enjoy the game. We don't know how it's all going to come down, but we, God wins. God rules history. We have the winning hand. So what difference should that make in our life? That's what I just talked about here. Here it is, right here. What difference should it make? My plans have a limit. My plans have a limit. The horse is made ready for battle. Victory is in the hands of the Lord. You can work your tail off, and things might not work out the way you think they should, but they're going to work out according to how God thinks they should. And he has a better plan for you. Take a look at this uh, big slide up here on the screen. Uh, here's the problem. And, and this, I'm a, how many are control freaks here in the house? Control freaks? I'm leading the pack right here. Okay. I think more of you are, but you just refuse to raise your hand, don't you? because you're trying to control the situation right now. Okay, look at this. Most of my issues are because I'm trying to control the things that are out of my control. So what's out of my control? The outcome of my efforts, the future, how others take care of themselves, what other people think of me, what happens around me, the opinions of others, the past, the actions of others, That's out of my control. I get so stressed out because I'm trying to control all that stuff. Here's what's in my control. My thoughts and actions. What I give my energy to. How I speak to myself. The goal I set. How I spend my free time. How I handle challenges. My boundaries. The horse is made ready for battle. Victory is in the hands of the Lord. I've got to understand my plans have a limit. And I've got to be okay with that. Here's the next one. My problems have a purpose. My problems have a purpose. It is impossible to despair when you remember that the most loving, wise, and powerful being in the universe is your Father who's working all things for your good and His glory. So all the bad stuff that's happening, I love Genesis 50-20. Genesis 50-20 is the Old Testament version of Romans 8-28. Both of those are great verses to memorize. What the enemy intends for harm, God intends for good for your life. And Daniel, who is looking in the eyes of his perpetrators, these are his brothers who stripped his clothes off of him, 
threw him in a pit, sold him into slavery. 15 to 20 years later, he's looking in their eyes and he says, you guys intended to harm me, but God intended it for good for what is now being done. They're saving him many lives. I'm telling you, whatever you've gone through, God's going to recycle that pain and use it for your good and his glory for the saving of many lives. Share those testimonies with the people around you because God wants to use you in that. My problems have a purpose. My prayers have an impact. That's why he says in Matthew 6.10, your kingdom come, your will be done. So we can invite God to rule and reign in our lives and through our lives. We can bring love where there's hatred, joy, where there's despair, peace, where there's panic. And then my perseverance will have payoff. Man, don't give up. Do not grow weary in well-doing because in due season you will reap a harvest if you don't give up. Matthew 24, 11 through 13, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Endure to the end. God rules history. Therefore, you can be less stressful and more restful because we have the winning hand. Next week, we're going to talk about how we can pray for revival, renew and awakening for our country. Humble, bold prayer, Daniel chapter 9. I'll be up front at the end of the service along with any available elders or leaders. If you're new, we'd love to meet you. If you need prayer, love to pray with you. If you have any questions, we'd love to answer those questions for you. I'm going to pray by praying and keep your eyes open. We're going to pray with your eyes open. It's okay to do that. We're going to pray the serenity prayer. I need that this weekend. You guys ready for this? It's up on the screen. There it is. Keep your eyes open. Let me pray through this with you, and we'll be finished up. God, grant us the serenity, the peace to accept the things we cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and wisdom to know the difference. Living one day at a time, enjoying one moment at a time, accepting hardship as the pathway to peace. Let's finish the rest together. You guys ready? Taking as Jesus did this sinful world as it is, not as I would have it, trusting that he will make all things right if I surrender to his will, that I may be reasonably happy in this life and supremely happy with him forever in the next, all for his glory in Jesus' beautiful name. And everyone said... Amen. God bless you guys. Love you guys.